0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts. And on this episode of Radio Free Acton, we first bring you a conversation with the president and CEO of Hope International, Peter Greer. Hope International is an organization dedicated to sharing the hope of Christ as they provide biblically-based training, saving services, and loans that restore dignity and break the cycle of poverty for those in need. Acton's own Poverty Cure Strategy and Engagement Manager, Andrew Vanderputt, will be speaking with Peter about how human flourishing can be brought about in the context of poverty. Then on our Upstream segment, where we talk all things culture— Bruce Edward Walker speaks with the author Jeremy Begby on his new book, Redeeming Transcendence in the Arts, Bearing Witness to the Triune God. So, without further ado, let's begin.
1: Welcome, everyone. My name is Andrew Vanderput, and I am the Poverty Initiative Manager here at the Acton Institute. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of chatting with Peter Greer, President and CEO of Hope International, who will be giving a talk at Acting University titled Created to Flourish, Celebrating Entrepreneurship. Peter comes to us with a wealth of knowledge in both business and development. He has spoken at numerous conferences on these topics and has been featured in Christianity Today, World, Forbes, CNN, and Relevant. Peter has also written many books including The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good, Mission Drift, and Entrepreneurship for Human Flourishing. I myself am a huge fan of Hope International, so it's especially exciting for me to be able to talk with you, Peter. Thanks for taking your time to speak with us.
2: Thanks for that really kind introduction. Really appreciate the time with you.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's jump right into it and get some questions in here. So as I mentioned earlier, you will be speaking on the connection between flourishing and entrepreneurship. I think that many people understand the concept of entrepreneurship, but they don't really have a good grasp on what we mean when we say flourishing. Some might think that simply means the absence of material poverty, for example. But I know you think it's something a lot more than that. So, how would you define flourishing? Yeah, it's a great
2: question. You know, one of the one of the key uh, pieces that we sometimes walk into uh, a place of financial poverty, and oftentimes, especially for those of us that are coming from a North American context, we are stunned. By what we see um, and and uh, we define poverty oftentimes by strictly material terms, we see what individuals don't have and it's really interesting. There was a study that was done by the World Bank, and when they asked individuals in places of financial wealth relative uh, how they define poverty, they almost always define it in terms of less than a certain amount of money per day, less than this and so if that is the definition of poverty then it makes sense that the primary way that we would address that issue of poverty is to give uh, and to try and figure out some way of alleviating uh, that aspect of poverty, but it's really interesting that when that same question was asked in individuals that are living in places of financial poverty, they defined poverty in a much more holistic sense. Um, I have asked that question, how do you define poverty? individuals uh, living in uh, nations throughout the developing world and it really is interesting because i found the same thing that the world bank found as well when they asked their is and that individuals were defining poverty as a sense of hopelessness a sense of shame a sense of feeling dirty a-, a sense that were that they weren't good enough and so if that's the definition of poverty then the way that we address poverty should be beyond just the financial aspect, and I really think that's at the core of what flourishing is, to look at the financial aspect of poverty as one of the dimensions of poverty, but not the only one. So, if individuals have more, but don't have uh, solid relationships in their community, that's not really flourishing. Uh, if individuals are having you know, some financial prosperity, but their lives are falling apart, that's not flourishing. And intuitively, we kind of know that, but I love the word flourishing because it, it points to a, a bigger definition of the problems that we're trying to solve, and it also includes an aspect of, of spiritual poverty as well. Um, do we know that we are loved? And, and a broader sense of understanding what is this issue of poverty. So we, we define flourishing as the restoration of relationships spiritually, uh, socially, personally, and materially. So a broader, more holistic picture of what poverty is. And Walking with the Poor, the book by
1: Brian Myers, was so helpful in kind of helping uh, define this broader definition of poverty. Excellent. You know, given kind of that definition that you just provided, what would you say is, you know, the, the very nature of entrepreneurship and work, what is it about the very nature of entrepreneurship and work that causes people to truly uh, flourish as you just defined it yes
2: I think there are several several aspects I, I think one of the gifts of work is the ability to provide something for other people
0: right in, in the
2: broader marketplace there's the production uh, and then there is also the opportunity to sell good products or services it, it has this way of adjusting the power dynamics because there's not one way So charity is often defined as a one-way transaction. I see an individual, I have pity for that individual, and I give them something that I think they need. And there is a one-way flow. What I love about work and the way that work contributes to a broader definition of flourishing is that it's everyone is giving and everyone is receiving, and there's reciprocity and there's relationship. And it's not just one group of people that are the givers and another group of people that are the receivers, but instead it's a way of, of, of leveling the relationship where everyone is giving and everyone is receiving and everyone has the opportunity to be better off.
1: Yes, very much so. I know Michael Miller mentions, the the director of Poverty Inc. and um, Poverty Cure here at the Act Institute mentions that there's a not only a transitive nature of work where we give and take and, or give and receive, but there's the Intransitive nature of it as well, where we're transformed through giving to others. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I'd so appreciate it whether it's Poverty Anchor, the Poverty Cure Series, or the broader work of the Ackman Institute, that you have been uh, leading this conversation for many years and, and really for all of us, uh, giving us language that oftentimes describes what we do better than we've been using uh, in the work that we do. So really appreciate the great work of, of Michael Matheson-Miller and so many
1: others that are there at the team. Well, oh, thank you so much. You know, one thing that, that's, that's been interesting to me that I've been kind of keeping an eye on is that, you know, there does seem to be a very fairly popular opinion out there, and both in the general public, but also within Christian circles that seems to to define or to deem entrepreneurship and business as antithetical to human flourishing. You know, in this view, business is seen as primarily exploitative and and harmful to the poor. So what would you say to people who hold such views in order to convince them otherwise?
2: You know, I probably would encourage them to spend uh, more time uh, with people that do not uh, have a job and and to listen uh, for what it is that they are looking for. And this was Jim Clifton's Uh, in his book, The Coming Jobs War, uh, he said this was one of the most significant findings of the Gallup organization, um, as he's been working uh, for many years doing these global surveys. And for him to say the most significant finding is that around the world, what people want more than anything else is a job, the opportunity to work. And so oftentimes, uh, we, we might, from a perhaps position where we... See a couple of stories of greed or abuse of power, which certainly exist and certainly should be confronted and are not okay, sometimes we use those isolated incidents to cast a shadow over the broader workplace instead of realizing that those should be the deviations, those should be addressed, but not to paint all of business, all of entrepreneurship, all of what individuals around the world are looking for, the opportunity to have meaningful work, um, and not to miss out on the opportunity to say, these are things that individuals are looking for. Um, so I, 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 my, my simple response is, when I spend time with people in places of material poverty, you hear individuals saying, we want a job, we don't want your charity, we would love the opportunity to work, And more than that, uh, the work that HOPE International does of providing small-scale loans, savings services, uh, and entrepreneurship training, uh, you see uh, a vibrancy in places where there previously maybe weren't all of the opportunities to to use God-given gifts and abilities, and now there are more of those opportunities. And you can feel the difference. You can feel momentum. You can feel hope in, in many of the communities around the world.
1: We also have have noticed that as the Parvy Initiative Manager and then just as, as Acton and in our, in our Parvy Initiative as a whole that there does seem to be a, a group of organizations and whatnot like Hope International and others that um, are really promoting, you know, business and entrepreneurship as the more of the solution to poverty versus the traditional charity models. But there's still a lot of people, again, like who who aren't convinced. Like I was mentioning earlier, how do you think we, of those organizations that do think business is is the permanent solution, uh, more or less to to poverty, how have we failed to convince uh, some of these skeptics, and what can we do better? Yeah,
2: I don't know uh, how to change someone's mind very easily. Um, so, I think that's a really tough thing to do. But I think there are a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, first is, sometimes in our zeal, sometimes in our excitement for our approach, we might miss out on the opportunity to celebrate and acknowledge the roles of other types of interventions. And I think it actually strengthens our credibility when we can see short-term aid that is done really effectively, because there is a time and there is a place when that is needed. And and to celebrate that, um, and I think that gives more credibility when we say, you know, that was right, that was appropriate at that moment in time. But now the situation has changed, and now there's more of a of, of a need uh, for the longer form development. Now there's an opportunity uh, for more of the business solutions to provide those permanent, uh, more permanent solutions to some of the systemic issues uh, that that community. Is facing. So, I think the first thought is let's make sure that we're not overselling in our excitement for business and entrepreneurship the other avenues that are needed. Um, I think the second thing is to make sure that, uh, that we are highlighting uh, the successes. There are a lot of successes around the world that uh, the stories just haven't been told. Um, and so, I think there perhaps is a need for better storytellers. Um, as we do this work, and maybe not for organizations to tell the story, but maybe to elevate more of the voices of the individuals that we serve, allow them to be the ones to communicate with greater clarity, why is it that a job was so transformative in their life? Why is it that you uh, at one point, maybe individuals thought you needed charity instead of watching what happens when there's an affirmation of your gifts and abilities. What what has been the impact? And so maybe communication needs to be changed. And then I think the third piece is just to recognize that this is a long-term shift um, and uh, maybe to have a little more patience uh, with the process. I, I, I see what is happening on college campuses with the rise of uh, interest in social entrepreneurship. I think that Shark Tank has had a massive influence on the ability for for individuals to think creatively about launching enterprises. I think about uh, the number of opportunities there are to go on trips, and I'm optimistic that the tide is changing, and just as we've had kind of the wave of caring about needs around the world uh, that has been steadily growing. I think we're close uh, to having a similar and the way that we care includes thinking about business and jobs as an essential part of development and Christian mission uh, around the world. So I I guess the last thought is maybe have patience in the midst of this, realize this is uh, going to be a long term changed way of
1: thinking and uh, that probably will take uh, a number of years to get to there. All points well taken, Peter. Thank you so much. I could talk for many more hours on the issues related to development and business and the like, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. So once again, we've been speaking with Peter Greer, CEO and president of Hope International. Peter, thanks so much again for your time today. Uh, really appreciate it. And we look forward to having you with us at Acting University this June. I'm looking forward to being with you as well.
0: The West has made itself the protagonist of development giving rise to a multi-billion dollar poverty industry. From Tom's Shoes to international adoptions, from solar panels to U.S. food aid, the film Poverty Inc. challenges each of us to ask the tough question, could we be a part of the problem? Drawing from over 200 interviews filmed in 20 countries, Poverty Inc. unearths an uncomfortable side of charity we can no longer ignore. Watch it today, now available on Netflix, iTunes, and Amazon. Or to learn more, visit PovertyInc.org.
3: Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and this week we're talking to Professor Jeremy Begby, who is a Thomas A. Langford Research Professor of Theology at Duke Divinity School, the founding director of the Duke Initiatives in Theology and the Arts, and senior member at Wolfson College, Cambridge. He's also a professionally trained musician, and he has a new book out published by Erdman's, and it is called Redeeming Transcendence in the Arts, Bearing Witness to the Triune God. And I just finished reading it last night, and it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and I, I, I highly recommend it. So, uh, hello, Professor Begby. How are you, sir?
4: Hello, Bruce. Very well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words.
3: Jeremy, I I found your book to be uh, an interesting meditation. I was writing notes as I was uh, sitting down with this last night. It's a meditation on the intersection of religious faith and the world of art, which is always uh, of great interest to not only me, but as well, the act and audience. So, before we do a deep dive into the book, tell me exactly how would you describe your book? What was the intention of the book, and what was the inspiration?
4: Right. Well, For about 30 years or so, I've been working at the interface between particularly music and theology, Christian theology, and I'm a practicing musician. And in my work with musicians and also with other artists, painters in particular, I noticed that in order to describe the experience they have of music art or whatever it is, they often grab at transcendent language, uh, semi-divine language. They use language like sacred and spiritual, whatever. And for a long time, I've wondered what lies behind that and why do, they, why do they do that? Some people are very skeptical of that. I would be a little less skeptical and want to say, no, they've definitely seen something in the arts which points to divine transcendence. But where I'm a little bit cr- critical is that those who have written on this tend to speak about transcendence in a very vague and amorphous way. And I'm trying to bring the, the riches of the Christian tradition, and particularly the Bible, to bear on the word transcendence so that we can get a little bit wiser about what it means to say that the arts give us a transcendent experience. So I'm trying to take the widespread talk of, art, of, of transcendence in the arts very seriously, but I want, to, uh, I want to do that quite carefully and quite critically as well.
3: Well, it's interesting. Uh, you, you should put it that way because I, I just listened to an interview yesterday with uh, the late Tom Wolfe, where he said that mm, yes. uh, he said that it's indicative of our times that the attendance at churches is very sparse, whereas the attendance in art galleries is bulging.
4: Absolutely. I mean that is very significant. And there's been a lot of written now which suggests that the art galleries and the concert halls are the new churches, that people are going there for something like a, a transcendent experience. It's interesting in England, uh, although church attendance in the main denominations is falling, uh, church attendance in the cathedrals, these vast, vast spaces, uh, is increasing really quite dramatically. There's been, I think it's something like uh 20% increase over the last few years. Uh, and I think that speaks of something as well, because that's a mixture of both art and transcendence, I think.
3: Again, transcendence, it's in the, the title of your book, and it, it appears uh, with amazing frequency throughout uh, your text. I, explain to me uh, what transcendence is. You, you've already established what it is not, which is a, a vague term. You you actually try to nail it down to a concrete term.
4: Well, I think there, in the Christian tradition, there are two strands to the word. And the one I call otherness, and the other I call uncontainability. So to say God is transcendent is to say that God is other than the world. That is, God is not the same as the world, and the world is not the same as God. That's nothing to do with separation or indifference. It's not like God is somewhere else and not interested in the world. But it does mean that we can't confuse the two. That's, I think, the first Christian sense uh, of transcendence. We say God is transcendent. Uh, the second term is is uncontainability, but when we say God is transcendent we 're saying god can 't be held or grasped or encompassed uh, or pinned down by this world by finite things and really, the book is an attempt to explore both of those strands, the otherness and the uncontainability of God, and saying. Uh, how can they, how might they be expressed or come alive in the art?
3: I, I really like how you channeled Jacques Maritain in, in your book. Yeah. When you, you know, things are not only what they are, and that that seems to, to feed into what you're talking about.
4: Very much so. I, I speak about Maritain in relation to uncontainability. I think one of, one of the things that Maritain is trying to say is that everything in the world uh, exceeds our grasp it, every, particularly people uh, always exceed what we can say or what we can think um, so I you know, I think about my wife for instance whatever I say about her it'll never be enough and whatever I think about her it'll never be enough I can't as it were fully grasp any reality in this world Maritain thought that artists were really getting at that if you think about a work of art that's really great and profound however much you say about it and however much you think about it, you're never going to say everything. The arts remind us constantly that the world is more than we can grasp. There's a kind of uncontainability about the art. what I'm saying, and what Maritain was saying in a slightly different way, is that that could make us ask, it'll press us to ask, uh, could there be more to the world than we can ever say or grasp, and could there be more than of the world? Could there be a a power at work in the world that can never be contained by this world? So in that way, I think the arts, they don't prove God or anything like that, but they gesture towards a God who is uncontainable.
3: Well, that's great. And and you also reference a a book that has been very much in the press lately, and that is uh, Paul Schrader's book on uh, transcendence in film. And uh, he, he has a new film out called First Reform. And so they refer back to his 1972 volume, where he talks about Carl Dreyer and uh, Robert Rawson and all all these uh, directors who approached the transcendence, if not totally
4: attained it. Indeed. And, of course, Terrence Malick would be another. I think there are many very interesting filmmakers now who are willing to speak of transcendence again. I think what I'm saying in the book is that's terrific, but we need to be careful not simply to think we can then take, as it were, the, the Christian bits, uh, the Christian bits of theology, and graft them onto that. Because true as these intuitions of transcendence are, and I want to take them very seriously, um, we have to be careful because the Christian the, the Christian revelation of transcendence of God's transcendence is so much um, how can I put it so much richer, more colourful than even these people have have uh, intuited or had an awareness of. Well,
3: and that leads to uh, your bringing up and quoting Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was yeah. a, a wonderful poet, where, and uh, you, you bring up his poem, God's Grandeur. And Absolutely. Th- and, and the great thing about God's Grandeur is that you can contrast it with Hopkins' terrible sonnets and really yeah. get the, 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 the full panoply of human existence. In in light in light of the of divine existence,
4: precisely. It's very very well put. Um, uh, Hopkins is one of my favourite poets for all sorts of reasons, but one of the reasons is he's he first of all when he talks about the world being charged with the grandeur of God, which is terrific. He's not saying that the world therefore is divine or that God is the world. He's saying God is is vibrantly active in the world, and we all see signs of his activity. But the other great thing about Hopkins is he's reading the world through the eyes. Um, of of God's revelation in Jesus Christ, the the, the God He's um, be, He's inviting us to be aware of and listen to, is the God who's supremely revealed in the person of Christ. So that we need to rethink the transcendence of God and the activity of this transcendence of God, in the light of what's what's happened in Jesus.
3: Where do you cross the line? Where's the line crossed between uh, the the wonderment expressed in God, or as, as Yeats would say, the inarticulate speech of the heart, and suddenly making the maker, the artist, a, a divine
4: character. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it's interesting. It's particularly the Renaissance, I think you find suddenly the artist is called a creator. Before then, I don't think there's a single reference, certainly not in Christian literature or in the West, uh, to the artist as a creator. It's the idea that only God creates. Um, we we're as it were secondary makers we take what god has made and we make something out of that but that we're not gods in what's called modernity or the modern age and especially you find this with romantics that the artist is exalted as a kind of as you say godlike figure and confuses him or herself (laughs) with the divine and thinks that you know we can that the artist can create out of nothing and do divine things i think that's that's quite dangerous, but it's extremely common. Dare I say you see it in the modern rock stars sometimes you even see it in some Christian songwriters who who although they wouldn't want to be framed in that way, are sometimes advertised as if as if they were sort of i don't know semi divine as you say semi divine or god-like figures. Or demigods. With all the powers. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Or demigod. Yeah, precisely. Um, and that's, I think that's dangerous stuff. I think the arts are at their best when we remember we're not God, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just the way we're made. We're finite, we're creatures, we're embodied, and we shouldn't be ashamed of any of that. And that's when the arts, I think, flourish at their best, at least it's certainly in a Christian view.
3: Well, and that brings up another one of my favorite poems, and uh, we can use this as a jumping-off point to discuss uh, your definition of the sublime, is yeah. is William Wordsworth, who wrote, My yeah. heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. To me, that, that pretty much sums up the human experience when you can stand beneath a rainbow or stand beneath a star-filled sky and just behold your relative insignificance. Not, you are not insignificant because you are one of God's creations, but yeah. it's, a, it's a relative insignificance underneath the vastness of what God has created.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I was in New Zealand uh, two or three weeks ago and at the foot of many mountain ranges, um, and that's a classic instance of what the 19th century writers uh, and some of the 18th century writers, too, called the sublime. Sublime is an experience of being overwhelmed and the kind of experience, when you say, uh, as the Americans <laughs> do quite often, this is awesome. Uh, <laughs> the experience a large mountain range, you're overwhelmed by the size of it compared to you. That's one form of the sublime. And closely related to that, uh, you, you feel this in a storm. You're overwhelmed by the power, particularly of nature. That's the experience of the sublime. And it was celebrated especially in the romantic era at the beginning of the 19th century. We see it in the paintings of Turner. Um, you see it all over the arts and it's fascinated people and of course as you would expect it very quickly got linked to God and transcendent Um, I of course have had that experience I've nothing against that experience I think it's wonderful what I'm trying to do in the book is to to fill that picture out a bit and the problem with the the sublime it can be radically overpowering and even terrifying as well whereas to be overwhelmed by God as I say in the book is to be overwhelmed by love the doctrine of the Trinity is saying that God is love in His innermost being.
3: Well, I think that was a wonderful description. But explain to me and to the listeners: obviously, there's the love of the Father for the Son in the Trinity. Yeah. But there's another component to that, and you go into great detail about how the Holy Spirit colors, adds the color, adds adds the emotion, adds the the the, the fullness of human experience to art.
4: Uh, yes I, I, the holy spirit is the life of god who in the new testament brings the future into the present the, the, the spirit is is speaking so to speak from the future that god has promised the future that god is promising in the new testament is a is a future of the recreation of all things uh, a new world as the bible talks about as a new heavens and a new earth and the spirit is bringing that glorious future reality into the present and part of the way the spirit can do that i think is through the work of artists undoubtedly there's a great deal of art which at its best is giving you a kind of foretaste of the future i I mentioned a lot about the music of bach in the book there yes and i think bach at his greatest and his best is giving us a kind of sonic preview (laughs) of heaven of the future Uh, and that is the work of. That's the supremely work of the Holy Spirit in New Testament terms. And this gives arts a wonderful... You see, we don't think now just of the static present moment that we experience through the arts. We're thinking this present moment is charged with promise. It's charged with a future. I think Bach does that. I think many of the great artists do Certainly Hopkins does that at his best. It's not to be sentimental. We're not ignoring the the horrific realities of this world, of of, of death, of cruelty in all its horror, but we're saying at work, even in this in this darkness or in this very ambiguous world that we're living in, even there, the spirit is at work trying to create foretaste, previews, aperitifs, you might say, uh, of the future to come. Well, that's terrific. Uh,
3: so what is it that you really want readers to take away from, from your
4: book? <laughs> that's a great question. I think, well... I think a number number of things, two main things. The first is that I want them to sense the glorious pressure out of which Christianity burst. (laughs) In other words, to go back to the texts, particularly the New Testament, in whatever way they can access them, you can't read it through from beginning to end, but whatever way you can access those texts in small bites or in large bites, and to see how incredibly revolutionary, exciting, and sometimes very mysterious they are that there's much more to those texts than we can ever imagine. And then, the second, in light of that, to look at the amazing possibility of possibilities of the arts in our time, to bring that worldview to expression and to do a new work amongst us. Um, I think we're only, in many places, we're only beginning to discover the power of the arts. And I say this especially when a certain kind of secularism or what some call reductionism, when you want to flatten the world into simply what the natural sciences can teach us and nothing else, when that is rife, uh, the arts will just radically widen your vision of the world and its possibilities.
3: You discuss this in the book, and uh, you, you touch on it briefly. For, for for example, you say film soundtracks, the music on film soundtracks, is uh, a remarkable thing in and of itself where you scratch the surface and, and you can discern a sacred inspiration
4: yes yeah very much so. i think i would actually take nearly all church musicians that i know now um and i would say one of the best things we can ever do for worship is to go and learn from film film musicians film composers because they can they can access as we all know they can access parts of the human condition that really very few other people can Uh, they are using an enormously wide, generally, a wide range of emotional color. The trouble is, in a lot of worship and a lot of the Christian culture, we're using really only about two or three colors, and... uh, and that 's a sadness, so I think we can learn a huge amount about film music. I mean, just think what a film would be without its music <laughs> oh absolutely uh, you know it, it 's by no means just an extra it 's taking you into the very depth of those images and the and the narrative or the words or whatever the texts are being used.
3: Well, can you give me some examples i mean i, I 'm an old film buff, so I, you know i grew up Good. Listening to uh,
4: well I mean uh, I think of something like um the film Psycho. And not Mm -hmm. just the famous shower scene, but uh, there are all sorts of other fascinating scenes. When she's driving to the motel, it's very subtle. What um, Herman, who's the composer, uh, is doing with the music there—all you're seeing is is a woman driving with actually perfectly ordinary expression. But because of the music, it's kind of hurried, repetitive, nervousness. You are reading all sorts of things into that look that otherwise you would not be thinking about. So by the time she arrives at the motel, you're really feeling very differently about her than you did when she started the journey. That would be an example. Another kind of very popular example would be the opening of Jaws. Um, John Williams, of course, anything right, John Williams right, it's going to be superb. But John John Williams' music at the end of the Jaws makes makes you, at the beginning of Jaws rather, makes you frightened for what's going to happen to the lady long before anything else happens or before anything does happen. uh, music creates that k- kind of anticipation. That could, could be fear. It could be anticipation of all sorts of things. That would be another example. If um, The latest film, Dunkirk, um, I forget the name of the composer, I'm afraid, but th- th- the use of music that in that I could go on about for ages. I think it's, it's just one of the finest scores I've ever heard.
3: Talk a little bit about the visual arts. In, in your book, you uh, begin by discussing Mark Rothko, and yep. uh there are several others uh Kandinsky and Paul Klee and uh, yep. other artists
4: right well i think what you get with people indeed like rothko and uh y- yes probably klee as well is you get an intuition of something other than this world um but uh, what i would i would say uh, that's fascinating and it can be very moving as well if you've We've been up close to those paintings. Um, I suppose I'm what I'm saying in the later chapters is that's okay, but let's not pretend we can simply call that God and identify it with the Christian God. Again, for the reasons that I was, that I was saying. Yes, we may intuit something that is other, but if we take the Christian God seriously, we'll find that this other is a is a good deal more, inter- actually more interesting, and more fascinating and richer than we might otherwise imagine from those paintings alone. So I want to take those those intuitions seriously, but we must be careful, I suppose what I'm saying in a book, let's be careful not to build our theology solely on those because we'll probably land ourselves in, in some problems. <laughs>
3: uh, I I could not agree with you more. Uh, Jeremy Begbie, it's been so wonderful talking to you. It's just a fascinating conversation and I I wish that we could go on all day
4: long. Well, thank you very much for your uh, very penetrating questions. It's been a delight to speak to you.
3: Well, thank you, sir. Jeremy Begbie is Thomas A. Langford Research Professor of Theology at Duke Divinity School, the founding director of the Duke Initiatives in Theology and the Arts, and senior member of Wolfson College, Cambridge. He's a professionally trained musician and he has also written Resounding Truth, Christian Wisdom in the World of Music and his new book out by Erdman's is Redeeming Transcendence in the Arts Bearing Witness to the Triune God I'm your host Bruce Edward Walker I'd like to thank my producer Caroline Roberts and we'll be back with another episode of Upstream next week
0: And with that we've come to the end of another episode A big thanks to all our listeners out there and if you would like to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do visit our website at acton, Also, if you have questions for the Radio Free Acton team that you would like answered in future podcast segments, email us at rfa at or leave us a message at 888-705-4180. If you like what you heard today, give us a rating on iTunes. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.